is up, everyone? Welcome into the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com. My co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In Episode 5, we're going to discuss two major topics, one of them being polyrhythms. We'll define what a polyrhythm is, and we'll talk about our own frustrations learning polyrhythms. The second topic we'll talk about will be drum shells. We'll talk about how the type of wood, the amount of plies, and the bearing edge can seriously affect the sound. In our gear review section, we'll be checking out Sabian's new big and ugly ride cymbals. Mike Dawson had a chance to play through them, and you will get a chance to hear them as well. So let's get started. Our main topic is drum shell properties, and when you and I spoke on the phone about this, I was telling you kind of my predetermined ideas of what I think about drum shells, and you kind of said, well, I just did some testing of my own, and you might be surprised. So before we talk about wood type or plies or depths or bearing edge, what was what, what experiments did you do? Yeah, I, I just had to do some inventory with my own collection. Okay. Really just for my own research to see what my drums could and couldn't do, and so I would know better what gear to use per, for a project. So I just happen to have 13-inch toms that are birch, maple, mahogany poplar three-ply, and an acrylic. So I, I got them all you know, out on, on the floor. Originally, I was going to put like the matching heads on everything, but I decided, you know what, this is my collection. This is the way they are. I want to just see how they sound with the heads they have on them and, and go with that. So it wasn't completely controlled. But regardless, what I did was I took the TuneBot uh, recommended settings for that particular drum for maximum resonance and then tuned up the highest recommended pitch for so that I think it ended up being like the note C so I tuned each drum to the note C played it in the room made mental notes put a microphone on it which was a closed mic and a pair of overheads and then recorded each one and then tuned it down to the middle pitch that TuneBot recommends did the exact same thing and then pitched it down as low as, as they recommend and did the exact same thing. You're so thorough. And then I did the exact the whole process again with the whole kit with the thirteen and a sixteen. And played wow. played both toms and then played like a groove. Okay, so let me give you my predetermined this has been stuck in Mike's head for his whole life thing, okay. and then you tell me your results. Okay. Okay, so when I think of maple, I think of warmth full body and decent attack when i think of birch i think way more volume harder wood not as much warmth um, and just kind of a in-your-face harsh sound walnut i think of responds better to low tunings um stuff like that and i really don't know much about walnut i've never recommended it to a student because so few drums are made out of it i don't have a ton of experience with it and then when i think acrylic i think almost like negatively about the material and i think it'll it you know it's a kind of a very fast decaying material it's loud because it's hard so those are like my predetermined prejudices now what did you find well it wasn't walnut although i did do a separate test with walnut and birch for gretch's new renown kit it was mahogany poplar not walnut. mahogany yeah. i got it okay okay so here's what i found in the room, setting the drum up on a stand and just hitting it, uh, it was a, you could really tell the difference. Like It was like night and day. I started with the birch, and it just was like, cool, this sounds like a, a nice drum. You know, it's kind of focused, it's hitting me, and it's, the pitch is very clear. 
when I put the maple up, it was like, oh my God, this is taking up, this is putting out so much more sound. Really? Not necessarily volume, but just okay. sound. It's just filling out the room in a much broader way. So it's got more frequencies going on, a wider range. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> All I can tell you is it was it was vibrating the molecules in my, my studio at a much more okay. noticeable rate. We will send Professor Brian Cox over to your house, uh, and he can do his own experiment. So that said, when I went back to the birch, it was clear that it was a bit. It was just a more contained, direct sound. Okay. Uh, the maple was just very broad, almost like, like, bombastically broad. Wow. Just like so much, so much space. And then the mahogany poplar. Even though I had, I had to double check. Even though I had each tuning rod tuned identical to the other drums, the pitch was lower. It just, okay. it just, it emphasized lower frequencies, and it, and it felt softer physically. Like it, it just was a softer, cushier sound. Got it. And then the acrylic, I expected to be kind of harsh and bright. It was right. actually one of the. It was the dullest, shortest sound. It was the punchy, okay. the punchiest of the four, and that was at the high tuning. And then just going down, it was it was pretty consistent. The, it was most not- noticeable for me at the high tuning. The difference when you got to mid and low, it just kind of became these are starting to sound like drums. Drums, got it. Uh, ex- with the exception of the mahogany, that always sounded darker, fatter, more like just softer. And do you know what the ply makeup was? Was it one of mahogany, then four poplar, then one mahogany? Or was it two, two, and two? It's one. It's inner outer mahogany and a Uh center ply of poplar. Three ply. Oh, it's a three ply shell. Yeah. Okay. So that's like your vintage style shell. Yeah. So that was just acoustically in the room. Very noticeable. When I put the microphones on them, they almost sounded identical. All of them. Really? Yeah. Again, with the exception of the three ply poplar that one just sounded like a minor key for some reason it just had a moodier sound that also could i mean there could be a little bit to do with just the shell makeup itself being a three-ply shell you've got two layers of glue holding that together rather than five layers of glue holding a six-ply shell Um, i don't know that that would affect it at all i'm sure the wood type has more to do with it than that but yeah um, three-ply shells do have a specific sound the acrylic was is a an old Ludwig light that has a segmented shell. It's like a red, an orange, yep. and a, so that the way that shell was made, it's not. I mean, it's got some some gaps in the seams right. and stuff, which was so it's not a, not a controlled experiment by any stretch of imagination. But well, no, and like you said, I mean, I think more than anything, the lesson here is that people should know their own gear. And it sounds like you weren't doing this for the podcast or for the magazine. You were doing this because you wanted to know your own gear so you could take it take the proper kit to the proper gig yeah and it, it's it's come in handy whenever i do uh sessions since then if, if it's a moodier or minor key tune i'll tend to go to the poplar maple, uh, mahogany if it's more of something where i just need a big kind of classic sound it's the maple and if i need something that just fits in a tight frequency spectrum it's the birch Got it. And the poor acrylic just doesn't make it to sessions. <laughs> There's no room <laughs> for it. But you know what? I think I think maybe, you know, not in your playing, but I think because I think obviously the acrylic stuff was kind of brought to the forefront for to be on stage, to be seen as a clear drum set. I mean, it was a cool thing to look at, but then eventually it did have its own sound. But I think 
right off the bat, just from your explanation, my experiences in the past, if I have a student, you know, or even myself that's playing a very note dense type of music, a lot of chops, um, then I mean, birch and acrylic are going to be perfect for that because they decay so fast. And you're going to hear the separation already note where if I want to play more of a Matt Chamberlain style and really let each note have a ton of value to it, it sounds like the maple um, and the mahogany are going to work better for that too. Yeah. The acrylic, and I have another acrylic kit that's seamless that I've used on gigs. And to define acrylic for me, it's like you're hearing the drum heads. Like right. the, the shell itself has like almost zero character. Right. So whatever you put on it, if you want to, if you put a double ply head, it's going to have a lot of attack. If you put a single ply head, it's going to have a longer sustain and, and kind of a brighter tone. So it's good for that. It doesn't work. It's not good for, for me when I play in a bunch of different rooms. I don't know what they're going to sound like because that, that kit sounds so different in any you know, different types of rooms. Sometimes it just has like nothing. Sometimes it's really too loud or too bright. So acrylic is, is kind of a testy for my experience, kind of a testy shell type. Got it. Got it. And yeah, and I think it's, I think it's a, it needs to be a double, a double thing where you want to have the acrylic because it looks good and because it has a very specific look on stage. Um, and I think it's, I think you're almost buying it more for the look than, than people obsessing over acrylic sounds, you know? Um, and I think especially too, unless your ear is tuned well enough to hear this stuff, I think that's why maple is so popular, not popular, but popular, because it just sounds like a drum. It sounds great. It's got a wide frequency. You can do a lot with it. Um, I've had drums that had very narrow tuning ranges where they only sounded good tuned a certain way. And generally, a standard maple drum set is going to have a pretty wide range of tuning. You can tune it up, get some jazz tones out of it. You can tune it down, put some gaff tape on it, and be playing in a Steely Dan cover band. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. And sometimes people get too exotic too early on in their drumming timeline. They've only played for two years, and they're like, yeah, I got a babinga, you know, 14 by 9 snare drum. I'm like, what? How? What are you talking about? Like, you start with the standards, you know? It was funny. I just recommended somebody uh, today during the online lessons was asking about cymbals and if they should get my signature ride cymbal. And I said, well, how long have you played for? And they've been playing for about a year. And I said, no, you should have like a Sabian B8. Oh, yeah. And when you feel that you finally have outgrown that, then you should get the B8 Pro, you know, or whatever. I mean, whatever the uh, equivalent is in Zildjian, Minel, Peisty, all that stuff. And uh, I said, but, you know, your, your gear should be determined by your ear. At some point, you just hear like, ah, my cymbals sound kind of tinny. Well, then you step up and step up. Same with drums. And, you know, Maple's a great place for people to start. Um, and then they'll learn more and more about what these things do. Yeah, I mean, when people often say it's either maple or birch, and in my little test, that that wasn't really the best comparison. It was more like you should either have a maple or a birch kit as your main kit and then go for something like a mahogany. So what you're saying is those two aren't far enough apart to really warrant thinking of them as two different things. Got it. I mean, it was like you can get a birch kit to do pretty much what you want. You can get a maple kit to do anything you want it just comes down to the minor difference of taste for like like focus versus breadth but the mahogany is very different yeah yeah i have four kits set up here at the facility and i just realized i don't have a single maple kit because 
My USA Custom is Maple Gum Tree Maple. My Brooklyn is Maple, then Poplar Maple. Um, and then my Broadcaster is Maple Poplar Maple, but in a three plaque configuration. So I don't have like a solid maple kit, you know? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's just important too at some point to kind of do what you did. Just put all the prejudices aside and just hit the drums and notice what you notice. And that's it. Without any predetermined Birch is going to do this and Maple's going to do this, you know. And there's also like Birch is the, a generic term. So a, a Birch entry-level kit is not going to sound like a Birch high-end kit. Right. The wood itself is a completely different wood. So that's you have to be careful with the word birch too. And the and and the country. I mean, uh, DW's American maple is much different than an, a maple tree from Japan, you know, that's being used in somebody else's drum. So, you know. And I mean, I think that's the other thing that always gets left out is we're still talking about wood. I mean, acrylic is the only one that can be kind of replicated exactly the same every time, but even if you had the same kit as me, your tree might have been cut down on a year that had less rainfall. I mean, there's so much that goes into this stuff and making things what they are, which is cool. We don't want to have exact replicas of everybody's stuff. You know, we want to have our own thing. Yeah, exactly. Find your own. Now, what do you think about like the shelf thickness? When you're looking for a kit for yourself, are you looking for how many plies it is, how thick it is? Um, do you do you think that like the shell thickness has a lot to do with the sustain that type of stuff? I mean, I'm sure it does, but in my experience, I I don't even know what the plies of my kits are, except for the three ply. I mean, I know what that is, but I don't know what my my uh, my maple kit is the Keller uh, Magnum series. So I know it's thicker plies, fewer number of plies than like a standard plywood shell, but I don't know what it is. Uh, the birch kit, I have no idea how many plies it is. So for me, thickness. I mean, I know what it what what it does, but I don't. I don't think about. I don't. I don't consider it. So you you just hit the drum. If it sounds good, that's one for you. Exactly. I mean, I know within these species, I know because I mean, you could go crazy. You can say, well, I want a, I want a thin. You could probably get a thin birch kit to sound like a thick maple kit. You just can go crazy with that stuff. Yeah. Well, I think you've taken a lot of stress off of our listeners' uh, plates as far as they're like, okay, good, because I have no clue what my kit's made out of. I don't know what wood it is. I don't even know what the name of the finish is. Is it Arctic white? Is it snow white? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we have to hit these things. They need to sound good. I mean, in general, guys, the thicker the shell, the higher the timbre of the wood. The pitch is going to go up. You can go down to Home Depot tomorrow and just go to the PVC pipe section and find a PVC pipe that is very, very thin. Hit it with your fist. It'll produce a low note. Then go find the same diameter but a thicker PVC pipe and hit that with your fist, and it'll produce a much higher note. That doesn't mean that the that the drum itself is better or worse. It just means that it's going to respond better to, to higher tunings or to lower tunings. And so if you want to really like a drum set that's going to produce a lot of low frequencies, you're going to want a thinner shell. And if you want that kind of – I remember um, – a good example would be the OCDP 50-ply snare drum. Just go listen to any Limp Biscuit record, and you'll know what a 50-ply snare drum does. It goes kick, and it's it's just a loud, dead crack, you know. Uh, the resonance obviously goes down a little, too. Things like the depth have a lot to do with your resonance. And resonance, for those of you that don't know, it's just how long the, the drum rings, how long the note lasts for. 
And so the shallower the drum, eventually what happens is you hear that resonant head right away. Um, so let's say we're talking about a square size drum, a 10 by 10 rack tom. Well, that, that diameter is pretty small and the depth is pretty deep. So that, that tone coming from the top head might never make it to the bottom head to resonate the head. So it might actually, even though you see this long tube, it might not have a ton of tone. And then as you start to bring that bottom head up by shallowing the drum, you start to get more and more resonance. And then eventually, it's the law of diminishing returns, you get the drum so shallow that it starts to not, it, it doesn't have the time to resonate anymore. It doesn't get to do its job. So that's why we have standard sizes like 10 by eight or 10 by seven because the, the drum industry has figured out a really good size. I think the most applicable situation for this would be bass drums. I think people started thinking in kind of the Travis Barker era, oh, deeper is better. I'm going to have a cannon. I remember hearing that word from all my students. Oh, man, I got to get this 22 by 22 cannon. And I was like, you will never, ever hit that thing hard enough for the sound to resonate the rezzo head. If you want the biggest bass drum sound out of a 22, you should get a 22 by 16 or a 22 by 14. Um, so the, the, the depth has a lot to do with it. Uh, do you have any kind of opinions on that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think of depth as headroom for me. So okay. especially in snare drums, a shallower snare for me means I, I'm not going to be able to wail on it. It's going to bottom out. Um, so if I'm playing really hard music, I need to go six and a half or deeper. If I'm playing more delicate music, I need to go shallower so the ghost notes are articulate. Uh, so for me, depth is like how much, how much, what's my volume? If I need to play hard, I want deeper drums, just deeper snare. If I'm going to be playing all over the place, I'll go for a five and a half. If it's going to be mostly quiet stuff, I'll probably go like four and a half. Uh, and bass drums, I don't have as much of an opinion about the depth of a bass drum because I, I have a 14 by 22 Rogers that sounds huge. I have a 14 by 24 WFL that sounds like John Bonham. I have a 14 by 20 that sounds huge. Uh, and I also have an 18 by 22 that I can really tell the difference. It does have a little bit more power, I guess is the word. I mean, that's kind of a generic word, but. No, no, no. I know what you mean. It doesn't, I mean, you're not going to get it as boomy, but it does kick you right in the chest. Yeah, it's, it puts out more, just like the the maple shell put out more sound. I feel like the 18 by 22 just put out more sound. Right. Yeah, it, it just took up more space. Um, toms, I really have no opinion. They, I don't like pancake toms. Right. But anything standard or, up, I mean, power toms you just don't see anymore. But they, they work, too. For me, I haven't had any trouble. In a, in a square floor time, I know some people have philosophies of, of not getting 16 by 16 or 14 by 14. But they work for John Bottom. They work for Ringo. They work for Bernard <laughs> Purdy. They, I mean, they're going to work for me, you know. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. I think uh, I think a lot of times, too, the tom sizes have to do with being comfortable. You know, floor toms sit on the floor or on a rack, but the, it's really the rack toms that, you know, if you get a, a 12 by 9 on a 22-inch kick, that thing's going to be pretty tall, you know, yeah. where when you have a 12 by 7 or 12 by 8, you get it does get to go down another inch or two inches, and it makes a big difference. So a lot of it has to do with that. That's why some of you guys that are listening may have seen some of your favorite drummers that play huge toms, their rack tom is on a snare stand. Well, it's because if they put it on top of their bass drum, they wouldn't be able to reach it. Um, the only one that can reach it is Mike Borden from Faith No More. I don't know how he does it. Um, but but still, I mean, so, you know, that stuff, there has to be a nice balance between comfort and sound. And um, 
And I, I really hope that all of you guys will go out there, you know, go to your local drum shops and just start looking at different sized drums, different materials, and just hit them and, and ask the guy at the drum shop, hey, why did Tama do this? Why did Pearl do this? Why did Yamaha do this? And just learn. The more that you learn, the, the, the more that you're just going to be able to make great decisions. Now, the last thing on this topic is bearing edges. I, man, it's another one of those things where if I'm playing a coated head, I can't hit a drum and go, oh, 30 degree bearing edge yeah, yeah. or 45 degrees. Like, I, I cannot do that. Can you? I mean, is it that big of a deal to you? Uh, I can give you a, a very particular experience. Um, the birch kit that I have came with very sharp bearing edges. Uh, they they were just made. That was the that was the trend. Everything was very sharp, minimal head contact, and it was too sharp. It was too, so sharp that that the head had nothing to sit on essentially. Uh. So it, I couldn't tune it. I couldn't even get a guitar tuner to register like a consistent pitch. So I had to take it back to the guy and I said, "Can you just do like a you know just light round over or do something to to even these out?" And that made all the difference in the world. So the one thing I would caution is is super sharp bearing edges is not in my experience is going to be a difficult thing to maintain right but once you get into rounding it over i mean i've i can definitely hear when you get into like baseball bat roundovers i can you can hear that it just sounds gooier and and when you get out to the edge you're not getting you're not you're not going to get as articulate of an edge response Right. Uh, but, you know, 30 degrees, 60 degrees, 45, double 45 with a slight round over, my ears can't hear it. I think, too, the, the other thing, too, is that you're usually getting – it's a combo platter. I mean, the 45-degree bearing edges are coming on modern focused drums where there's so many things going on in the shell along with the 45-degree bearing edge or the double 45 that is creating this modern focused sound where – like my broadcaster has 30 degree round over it bearing edges, but but the shells are three ply shells and the side and there's you know tone knobs and the whole thing is meant to give me a warm fat sound. So it's not like I've been able to say, okay, this is my kit with 45 degree bearing edges, like you did. Now I'm going to take it in and get you know full baseball about round over edges and see the difference. So um, you know I think it's just kind of it's just one little thing that can add to the vintage sound if you want it or add to the modern sound if you want it. Yeah, as a general, I would say don't go extreme either way. Exactly. Go yeah. go with someone who can give you a slight round over cut or something, so you can you don't want it to be too sharp or too round. All right. Well, let's talk about something completely different than shells. Let's talk about polyrhythms. So, polyrhythms. The reason why I wanted to talk about this with our audience is just because it gets brought up a lot. I think it gets brought up very prematurely in a lot of drummers' kind of growth. I think a lot of drummers just are starting out and they hear this buzzword like polyrhythms or metric modulation or beat displacement. And so I'll have students that say like, hey, man, I've been playing for about a year. Should I start working on polyrhythms? And I'm like, whoa, no, you should not. (laughs) That is, (laughs) you know, like right now you're having a little bit of trouble hitting the rack tom in the center of the head. That's not the time to be like, it's time for metric modulation or polyrhythms. So I wanted to talk a little bit about polyrhythms. I also wanted to talk about my time studying with Pete Magadini, who wrote a lot of the books on polyrhythms, including the Musician's Guide to Polyrhythms. But do you have any experience? I mean, was there a time in your music school that you just started working on time concepts like polyrhythms, metric modulation, that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of like, you know, ignorance is bliss coming up. I didn't have a drum set teacher until I was a senior in high school. 
I only took uh, I took classical percussion lessons from fourth grade on. But drum set, it was just me and modern drummer and and whatever books I could buy. Like that's no joke. That's not a plug because I work at Modern Drummer. I I learned how to play drum set through David Garibaldi's columns and Rod Morgenstern's columns and Pete Magadini's columns. Wow. And so I ended up buying. I mean, so that stuff was so far above my capabilities, but it gave me something to strive for. Like, if I can figure out what the heck this guy's talking about playing five over four swing time, you know, and his, <laughs> and his, the way he, he notates it, it's, it's nonspecific, so it's not giving you exactly how the polyrhythms fit. You just have to kind of, like, just magically one day the five is going to fit over the four. Right. Um, so I just kind of forced myself to do it probably way too soon. Um, and then I ended up getting Pete's book, Poly Symbol Time. I believe that's his book. Mm-hmm. I, I never could get through the whole thing. I think I got halfway through and just said, okay, I never on a gig is someone going to say, man, go to seven over four swing. <laughs> they're, just, sure. they're just not going to do it. But it was good of, of, of exposing me to just what possibilities are out there. So when I got to college, it was like you know, full bore because a lot of classical pieces I was working on required playing triplets with one hand and fours and fives and stuff with the other hand. Uh, I studied African drumming so I could hear these. Since I'd practiced them, I could hear this stuff. In Africa, I played in a salsa band, so there's a lot of triplets over eighth notes in that style. So because three over two. Yeah, because I'd forced myself as a kid to, to be able to play triplets and eighth notes simultaneously. I kind of had a like an early jump on that stuff. Sure. Um, you know, and then I got really into it, like with my teacher, like trying to mathematically determine all the different polyrhythms and stuff. But uh, I guess the biggest result was just to strengthen my my ear, my hearing, my awareness. When I would hear someone like Vinny or Weckl play, like a hemiola or triplets that go over across the bar line, it didn't just sound like chaos. I could identify it, and then I could yeah, yeah. break it down in some way. I think, and I think that goes for other instruments too i mean that's that was one of pete's big things on me is like hey maybe you will never play this but you'll be the one providing the backbeat behind the keyboard player that is playing this and when it happens you won't freak out as much because you'll know what's going on he always described it as what he called the rhythmic freeway and if you don't know your polyrhythms and you don't know your subdivisions then he felt like you were driving down a freeway at you know midnight with no lights anywhere in sight and no headlights on your car and the way you would drive would be very timid you'd be gripping the wheel super tight and you'd be scared out of your mind well that's what it's like playing as a drummer not knowing multiple subdivisions the polyrhythms of those subdivisions different modulations and he said once you learn your polyrhythms and all of your subdivisions and the modulations of those then it's like the sun comes up. You can see everything around you. And even though you're still driving on the same straight road that doesn't require any more driving skills, you feel so much more comfortable. You can take one hand off the wheel. You can look around. You can speed up. You can slow down. And you have full control. And that's what he wanted for me was he said, I I don't care if you ever use this. I want you to play your basic rock beat with so much freedom and, and control because you know the entire rhythmic highway. And I thought that was a brilliant analogy. It stuck with, I mean, he told me that when I was 24 years old and I'm still telling it to you now, 14 years later, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of where we started with things was we went with that. I studied with Pete for about five or six years and um, constantly 
Steve Smith was studying with him a little bit on and off at the time. He had a couple other just amazing students. And, you know, I would say, okay, you know, nine over five. And he's like, yes, it's mathematically possible. It doesn't mean that it musically makes sense. And I would say, well, I don't understand. How do you figure it out? He's like, you don't have to figure out the math behind it. So Pete's big thing for me was, you know, just he would say, like, I would ask him, okay, I want to work on nine over five. Is that possible? And he'd say, yeah, it's possible, but you don't have to think of the math behind it. What you have to think about is having a metronome on. And you go in one room and start playing five beats per bar, five evenly spaced notes per bar. Now you are the five guy. Now you go have a friend go in the other room, and he plays nine evenly spaced hits per bar. Then you guys, with headphones and earplugs, come out to each other and keep clapping at the same rates of speed that you were, and that would be a nine over five polyrhythm. Now do that with your body. And I was like, oh my God. Okay, what are the easier ones? And then he would break down, okay, it's not that they're easier, they're just more musical, and that would be three over two, that would be three over four. Um, I would ask him, what's the difference between three over four and four over three? And he would say, it's it's whichever pulse is the dominant pulse. And so in that, you know, if I have a rhythm like this, who's who's the dominant pulse? Is it the one, two, three, one, two, or is it the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, or one, two, three, four. Who is my quarter note as I'm playing drum set? And then you can name it after that. So with that stuff, I mean, that was this huge rhythmic exploration for me for like five or six years of my life. And I mean, I still do it now, but it's really cool to be able to play music and maybe play with like a fusion guitar player. The guy starts playing every third 16th note. So we're playing a groove and he starts going and I can jump in and get back out. And that's such a huge luxury to have in that in those fusion settings that I can either hold down the groove for the polyrhythm or I can join in on the polyrhythm and get us back out of it. Now, what about the actual science of polyrhythms? Did you ever uh, go and actually figure it out? Because that's what I ended up exploring a little bit in college. Like, sure, I can I can sort of fake a five over four, but how do I really do it? Yeah, I mean, so there, I did it in different ways, and, and maybe we did it in two totally different ways. But I would actually start with a pulse of any sort, and then I would start playing 16th notes, say. If it was 5 over 4, I'd start playing 16th notes. 1E and a 2E and a da 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 Then I'd start playing every fifth one. And that actually, every fifth 16th note, that became my 4. The pulse behind it became my 5. And then I would start playing in both of those time fields. How did you break it down? That was it, basically. But to do more complex stuff, like 9 over 5... Ah, you can't use sixteenth notes. So you have no, to you use cannot. so tuplets. Yeah, what we did was use the top number for your number of quarter notes. So okay. nine, nine, nine over nine five pulses. Sure. So nine pulses, the bottom note for your subdivision. So each pulse gets divided into five sixteenth notes, a quintuplet. Okay. You accent every five. Oh, and, got it. And then every nine. Got it. Okay, so 
one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a five e and a six e and a seven e and a eight e and a nine e and a fetch your nine. Got it. Okay. And then every and then ninth subdivision, you put an X in, that gives you your five. Your five. Got it. Can I not do that <laughs> right now? Can I just not ever try to sing that out loud <laughs> in our podcast? No, I mean, uh, exactly. Why don't we set a date for like maybe uh, the same time? April 22nd, 2017, Mike will sing a nine over five polyrhythm. <laughs> and what I want you to be able to do is to switch which one is your downbeat. So switch from of the course. nine being your pulse to the five being. <laughs> now that I mean, that's the thing. Actually, that's a that's a, a torture for that one. But that is that is the whole point, and that's what I would always try to make the difference for my students. Is they would play, you know, they'd have their feet going boom, 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 and they would say, "Man, I'm playing polyrhythms." And I was like, "Well, no, you're not. You're really just playing a composite. You're just playing a rhythm. You're not playing one, two, three, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. You're playing boom, gachat, doom, boom, boom, gachat, doom, get doom. You're just playing a rhythm um, built out of this math. And so by being able to groove in the three for a while and then decide, okay, now the four becomes my quarter note and I'm going to groove in that for a while and go back and forth, that's when to me it becomes a real polyrhythm. Yeah, I had an experience. I was teaching a student in college and we were learning Afro Cuban 6 8 patterns. Okay. He could only hear those things in three four time. Ah, it blew my mind. So he heard it like as a three four samba, with six really? with a sixteenth note subdivision, whereas it's oh, supposed it's to. It's like be. making me itch. <laughs> but that set me on a path of okay, I had to figure out how he's hearing it, and then I have to be able to transition from that into the triplet based twelve eight version of it. So I, that set me on a path of practicing playing the exact same Afro-Cuban, the standard Afro-Cuban pattern, and having the feet go from outlining the triplet feel and then switching to the 16th note feel immediately, like with no, you know, the two bars of one and two bars of the other. And then combining them, so having the left foot play the quarter note feel and the right foot playing the triplet feel and then switching. Oh, my God. So it, it forced him to hear this thing both ways. And then it also... When I got into my jazz group and we were playing Afro Blue or Footprints or something, I could all of a sudden improvise and phrase both ways interchangeably because I practiced it. It was that's so cool. It was so fun to be able, now. I now I just hear that pattern is not having a definitive. It's either it's both pulses. Wow, that's so cool, man. That's really cool. It's weird too that that's you know we take it for granted that all people that hold drumsticks can hear the difference between these things but even in pop i mean we have a section in our drum camps where i just we just play a game three four six eight and three four or six eight and i'll play songs i mean classic tunes you know and i'll just ask and you'd be shocked at how many people get it wrong because to me i'm like how do you not know that this is three four how do you know this is six eight but it's just how they're counting you know even in six eight they're still just counting in three sometimes and i'm like yeah okay well and then i have to show them the difference because mathematically they're the same and so you know and sometimes i'm not giving them something that has a drum part i might just give them a melody and say okay i need you to play a three four groove in your head and then play a six eight groove in your head and tell me which one would make this song feel better and it's it takes quite a bit of work for like a new drummer you know i mean sometimes we forget that you and i've been playing drums our whole life so we don't remember that time where 
we didn't know what six eight or three four was, you know. Yeah, but I can remember distinctly being in an African drumming ensemble, and the master drummer who was from Ghana, he would not give you the pulse. He would not show you the downbeat, ever. Really? Not not once, unless it was just so bad and no one was getting it. He would tap his foot on the one every couple of times. So <laughs> his whole thing was there is no one. You have to just figure out how it feels. You just have to figure it out. Make it work for yourself. Maybe you're oh. feeling it in three. Maybe you feel the bell pattern in three, but the supporting drum in six. But, so or in cool. four. But that's up to you. And it was just like wow. a certain ethic of we don't teach pulse. <laughs> it's just, it's not, there is no downbeat. You have to figure out your own. It's a movable downbeat. That's pretty cool, man. Which That's my, really you cool. know, my Western brain was like, this does not compute. You have to transcribe this. You have to give me <laughs> exactly how this works. And he would just smile and like, no, no, no. But it kind of, it forced me to be like, all right, I have to just, how does it feel? How does it settle? Look at the other parts. How is it all interacting? Look at the dancers, where are their feet hitting the ground? That kind of stuff. That's a really cool way to look at it, man. That's a really cool way to look at it. Well, Let's move on to what you got to do, uh, or not what you got to do, but what the magazine gets to do, which is put Bernard Purdy on the cover. Um, and what month was that, or is that? April issue. It, it just came off the shelves. Uh, got it. But it's still available. Probably awesome. some store, definitely online always. But yeah, he was on the April. And it was a long time coming. Yeah, I don't think he's been on the cover for 20 years or so. So crazy. It's so funny. I mean, I remember when you said that about Weckl, I was like, are, are you sure? I think he's on every cover, but yeah. that's all in our heads, you know? Same with Bernard. Like, what do you mean it's been 20 years? Like, he's on every cover, but, you know. Yeah, that said, it's probably been 30 years because it was in the 80s, I believe, the last time he was on the cover. Wow. But he just finally put out his biography, the book he's okay. been talking about for a long time. So this was a good time for us to get with him and our... Our uh, associate editor here, Billy Amadola, is actually a former student of, of Bernard's, so he got to kind of relive that, hang out with him, talk about wow. everything from Aretha Franklin to the Beatles yeah. to the, the patented Purdy Shuffle. Sure. Do you have, like, specific Bernard influences where you, like, obsessed over an album or a song, or is it maybe more like me where it's more of a general influence where people... You know, I, I work on a specific groove and someone else will point out like, hey, that's from, you know, you should listen to this Bernard track because it's very similar to that. Um, so for me, I can tell you it's definitely not a specific thing where I obsessed over his feel or obsessed over an album. Were you the other way? Did you have things that you kind of tripped out over? He was, I mean, this was before Spotify and YouTube, but when I first was aware of Bernard, you just, you, you couldn't... F if you didn't know what he was on, you couldn't find anything with him on it. It was just kind of this, like, Bernard's on everything, but I don't know what he's on. So it was Josh Freeze. Yeah, like, I know he's on Aretha Franklin stuff, but which record should I get? I know he's right. on, you know, all this classic R&B, but he's, he played with James Brown, but in the which records, not the ones that I had. Uh, but there was one track of his that I could find, and I knew it was him, and it was Home at Last on the Steely Dan record, uh, Asia. And for me, that was, like, that whole record is full of great drum performances, but that is one of my all-time favorite drum performances. And it kind of defined his Purdy Shuffle. So I would play along to it like every day. And he's so he's slippery and, and tricky and unpredictable with that thing. He doesn't just play the Purdy Shuffle. You know, that's that's kind of the right the misconception 
it's it's a feel, but he improvises within that feel. So that track to me was like, if I can play this all the way through, note for note, then I'll have achieved something. I still can't play it all the way through, by the way. But <laughs> so that's the track. I mean, I think if if you want to hear Bernard Purdy, that's the track because it's recorded so pristinely. You can hear every okay. detail. It's a it's a good song, and he just he plays his butt off on that. Can you mention it one more time for our listeners? Home at last, off of Boom. Steely Dan Asia. Awesome. Well, definitely everybody get the April issue so you can read about Bernard. So much history there, and I think it's like Mike was saying. I think we all think we know the Purdy Shuffle, and we and then when you think about it, you're like, do you really? Can you name a song that you listen to? And a lot of people can't, you know, and that's and that's fine. But it it's all out there for us. You know, we can find it on iTunes or Spotify, and and we can. You know, we can check this stuff out, so we should. Now, as far as our gear review, uh, were you the one that got to review the Sabian Big and Ugly Symbols? Yeah, I did. It was pretty cool. They they contacted me. They were in Sabian was in New York to do the video shoot with Mark Juliana and Davey Yeah. Rich. So they they contacted me right away. It was like, hey, these are here. Do you want them? So they shipped them straight to us after that video shoot. And they're they're funky symbols. They're they're kind of consistently across the board, super dry. Okay, which kind of makes them fun because I—I mean, when I was in, in one, a wannabe jazz drummer, there were there were no like dry, dark, thin jazz symbols. They didn't really exist. You had to pay like hundreds of dollars for a vintage K, which none of us could do, right. um, or like tape up whatever you had to kind of get that really dry sound. Uh, that I think kind of defines like contemporary modern jazz, like a dry ride sound and these have it and they're huge like 24 and, and 21 I think or 22 and 24 I don't remember wow. exactly but they're so dry that you can if you crash them it's just like it's like a puff there's no oh. there's no crash <laughs> <laughs> so now these um, I only saw them briefly at the saving booth at NAM, and you know what it's like to try to test gear at NAM. you can't tell the difference between the top end stuff and the entry level stuff because it's so loud there I didn't get a chance to see. Are these not lathed on top or bottom? I know they're not on the top, but is the bottom unlathed as well? It's. I think it's different combinations. Okay. Um, I'd have to reference the review to remember exactly. But it, in general, they're they're raw with different hammering types. Different. Okay. I think some of them are lathed on the bottom. All right. Uh, I know the one in particular, the XS Monarch, is 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 kind of like a a wide lathing, kind Got of like it. the the Minel Spectrum Ride, I guess, would be a comparable design so many dang names dude i was i was on their website uh when we were getting ready to do this podcast and i was like how the heck i thought i thought it would just be the sabian big and ugly one and the sabian big and ugly two but like you said it's like the the monarch the phoenix i, I mean the there were so many names yeah. <laughs> yeah i was like man i can't remember any of this but they do look i mean people you know i think right now we're in a trend where ugly symbols are cool um you know with the the turkish look that's yeah. happening um and you know, and I think it's cool that Sabian now has an option for that because, you know, obviously I played the Byzant series, which has that look, or at least the extra dries do, and I have tons of students that are Sabian fans, and and they're like, no, 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 I don't want your ride, I want it in Sabian because yeah. I love Sabian, and it's like, dude, that's that's cool, you should have that option. So it's good that Sabian has kind of entered that world. Yeah, and it kind of takes the old the old myth of burying your ride symbol in the backyard. And it's like, exactly. These are just ready that way. They just come that way. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. They were they were fun. 
do you think like one of them i mean did you have a favorite would one of them fit into your personal style if you could keep one and steal one um well you know they were they were very similar but also very different the ones that were in the hh series were probably the ones that i personally liked the best and there were three of them the pandora the nova and the king and they were just like different colors the king was like the darkest kind of chocolatey of the three uh and then the Nova was a little bit brighter and the Pandora was, was like super dry. And, and so it, they were all similar, dry, kind of dusty, dark, but with just different, different flavor palette for each one. The King was the one that, that I personally was like, oh, this is cool. I could use this. It looks really cool. It sounds cool. It's dark. Now it's time for our pick of the week. This is the end of the podcast where we get a chance to alert you to something that we think is important to check out. This week, my pick is really a drummer that I want to alert everybody to if you haven't checked him out. He's a French drummer. His name is Nicholas Vaccaro, and I found him when I was looking into making the move to Gretsch. I was trying to find videos of Gretsch drums being played online. And Nicholas had done a lot of the demos. And then so that led me to just, I was like, man, the drums are cool and all, but this guy is amazing. And then I started watching more of his fusion stuff and seeing all of his gigs. And then he was doing stuff with Gurgo Borlai. And, and I mean, it was, the guy is just absolutely incredible. He's He's got kind of, he's almost like a, I don't want to compare him to another drummer because it's just not fair to his artistry, but he's got a great, great amount of care for groove, touch and feel but he's a fusion drummer. So you do get like the kind of fusion dessert style of drumming where, you know, it's like, wow, man, this is really flashy and fun, but you also get a ton of healthy vegetables because he cares so much about text and or touch and groove. My pick this week is uh, a new accessory item. It's called pinch clips. Have you heard of these? Pinch clips. I have no clue what that is. They Bring look it. like uh, staple removers, like the little like prongy things that you use to okay. remove staples, yeah, yeah. but they're designed to to replace like thumb thumb screws on cymbal felt on cymbal stands uh, oh which is cool okay. that they work great for that but what i found the best use for me is to replace the bottom of a hi-hat clutch the bottom screw in a hi-hat clutch oh nice so you can just squeeze it and pull it right off you don't have to unscrew it so you can, it it saves especially for me i'm, I'm changing my hi-hats per track in the studio every time I'm trying a couple different sounds. Dude. So rather than having a bunch of clutches laying around, I, I just have these so I can just quickly, you know, I can change a symbol in, in five seconds as opposed to 20 or whatever it would take with a normal clutch. Uh, I don't know how well they'll hold up if you're going to play like super long gigs because they are thin metal. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't road tested them yet, so I don't want anyone to, to email me saying, man, that really ruined my gig. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's something to just look into and be alerted of. Yeah, but if for for doing you know three and a half minute sessions where I can make sure everything works at the end of each right. take, it's it's a really cool item, and I think they're pretty cheap. It's like a pack of three or four for like ten bucks maybe. Don't quote me wow. on that, but it's a it's a and neat it's, little item. And and who? What's the company's name? Is that their name? That the company's name? Uh, yeah, it's Pinch Clips, and I believe it's distributed by Big Bang. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I always feel like a pretty big moron in a gig situation where it takes me four minutes to thread the the bottom nut of the hi hat clutch right. correctly, <laughs> right. and I, I'm like, look, I promise I do this for a living. I just don't know why this thing won't thread. Um, it's one of those archaic so. things that I don't know why if someone hasn't just changed it. I know <laughs> it's hilarious, and it just is the way it is, and it's it's like it's just kind of. It's not annoying enough to do anything about it, but it's it's annoying enough that it's always a little bit of a problem. So yeah, so. awesome. Well, then uh, you check out Nicholas. I'll check out Pinch Clips. And for everybody at home, hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you get a chance, please go to iTunes or wherever you're getting this podcast from, and just rate us. Um, we're more than happy to take some criticism and tell us what we can do better. But if you like it, please let us know because that, that's how these things get rated and it really helps us out a lot. So until next week, I'm going to take the dogs down to the river right now and I will talk to you next week. All right, see ya. Later, buddy. <laughs>